Hi, hi, and thanks a lot for checking out the 39th chapter of Scoring at the Movies, the every other Thursday podcast that sticks its nose into the business of sports films, usually from long ago. We spoil the flicks we discuss, so to know now if that bothers you, although why would you be listening to this podcast if you knew nothing about the movie? That would be dumb. I'm the middleweight champion of the world who talks to himself in prison, or just about anywhere, really. Ryan Ellis, and here's the patsy who's often railroaded into jail for crimes he didn't commit, much like the A-Team. But love is going to bust him out. Christy Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan. And if there's two guys that know what it's like to be railroaded by the authorities and accused of crimes they didn't commit, it's certainly two middle-aged white guys. In Canada. Yeah. <laughs> that come from solid middle-class upbringings. We can relate to almost nothing in this movie. I know. We, including the boxing. I think well, yeah, the overarching preface to everything about this movie is that we are both woefully unqualified to speak to a lot of the racial justice issues that this movie tries to address. And it's going to be deeply uncomfortable to talk about a lot of those, I'm sure, at various mm. points. Hopefully I don't dig myself into too deep a hole by inadvertently saying something that rings the wrong way. Well, it's our certainly podcast. not my intention. It's, it's I don't want to pod- Don Cherry myself, that's Oh for yeah, sure. that just happened. The Don Cherry story a couple of days ago happened as we record this in mid-November. And he's got his November mustache over here. If I was thinking ahead, I should have insisted, instead of doing Hurricane, and granted, Denzel does rock a pretty good goatee in this movie, mm-hmm. but for November's sake, I think we should have tried to find something where the lead character, or at least one of the leads, has like a real bitchin' stash. Kind of Wilford Brimley mustache. And the walrus mustache. The walrus Or we mustache. could have said Mr. Baseball, because that would be Tom Selleck. Yeah, I was thinking about that. And I was well, we did to... that already this year. We did, and I don't think Selleck has any other sports movies, does he? Not that I'm aware Nothing of, Nothing anyway. major like that, if that was even major. Damn. Well, there goes that visual theme that nobody will ever see. Well, I just took a sip of beverage. What's your beverage over there? What's the beer of choice? Oh, the Mad and Noisy. Mad and Noisy. Not yeah. Madden as in, boom, John Madden, boom! <laughs> <laughs> so... Great. Now all I'm going to be able to think of is John Madden Boom! commentating the bar shooting. You see, here's where he went into the bar. and He's the magistrator. <laughs> or the telestrator. What's he called that thing? He's got the telestrator up with the exterior of the bar. And here's where he went wide with the shotgun. And he opened fire from this side. And That was probably in poor taste. Maybe I shouldn't go down that road. Anyway, in homage to Reuben Carter, who's, I think, pretty well known for being both an angry young man and a loud one at various points. Both for reasons valid and probably invalid. But... We'll see how this goes. Okay, fair. Have you had that one before? On the podcast? I don't think so. No, I just mean as a beer ever in your life. Also, I don't think so. Okay. Though, uh, we had a sip. How was it? <laughs> wow. Early impressions, eh? you got to tell me right now. Oh. I must know. You know what? It tastes like exactly what it is. A lagered ale from... God, I don't even know. So before we get into the hurricane, I do want to say two things. One is happy Thanksgiving to our American listeners because we released this on their actual Thanksgiving. The other thing I want to say is that this is a minor thing, but... In Blue Chips, I talked about, or maybe it was one before that. But anyway, I've recently said that there are three movies this year I've never seen before that we've done, but there's four. So that's something else, that we've actually covered four movies I had never seen before. Ready to Rumble. I'm going to forget them now. Bring it on. <laughs> Lionheart. And something else. It'll come to me later on. You ever get the feeling that one of these things is not like the other when you start reeling off movies like Ready to Rumble, Lionheart. Bring it uh, on. Bring it on. And then the last one being Blue Chips. No, I had seen that before. Well, what was the fourth one? Hurricane? No, I can't remember now. I just know that oh, when I looked damn. through, I heard that when I was editing and thought, that doesn't sound oh. right. So I looked through our list and thought, no, there's another one, which I'm forgetting what it is right now. But for those who care about pedantry, I know we do. That's why I mentioned it. Well, we were getting off to quite the stumbling yeah. start. Let's get into the hurricane then. So The Tropical Storm was released by Universal 20 years ago in December 1999. And I saw that on the big screen with a friend of mine. Remember liking it just fine. Didn't love it. Thought it was solid. It was a break-evener at the box office, cost about 50 million smackers, and didn't make much more than that. Now, when you say the tropical storm, I'm assuming that's the cute term for her. Okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you often say that there's alternative titling. Oh, that's that? true, yeah. So I didn't know I'm calling it that. They didn't call it that. <laughs> if in the southern U.S., because of the sensitivity to hurricanes, they instead called it the tropical storm. <laughs> or Don't the be tro- racist against hurricanes. The tropical depression. I've actually always looked for the alternate titles. Usually some country that will, I don't know, it might be a movie about baseball and they'll call it something really odd. 
But I haven't seen one of those in a while. That's why I haven't mentioned it. Did you notice, incidentally, speaking of hurricane and tropical storms, the way the announcers in the black and white boxing scenes... The very brief boxing scenes. Not a lot of them. Very little. I wasn't terribly thrilled with them either. Oh, yeah? This is debatably a sports movie, incidentally. It's mostly only a sports movie because of Ruben Carter's association with the sport of boxing and less to do with what's actually in the movie because I think there's only two sequences of boxing. And, I think and there's it, three. There's, all all it, flashbacks always in black and white. It opens on a flashback sequence and then you see his fight against, not Garibaldi, but the guy that he loses the belt to. Yeah, okay. I don't remember a third one. Okay, maybe there's only two then. But yeah, during those sequences, the announcers, I love the way they pronounce Hurricane. They say it, I guess, in a British way, the Hurricane. Oh, yeah. Hurricane Carter, coming at him furiously, like a hurricane. Reuben Carter. Rockin' Reuben Carter. Well, I'm going to give you my nutshell right now. Yeah. We're not really talking about this part yet. We will get to this part later on, but New Jersey resident moves to Canada. Truly missing the point of the movie, but that is what happens at the end. Might this be my first issue taken with your nutshell? I don't know. Because I don't think he ever actually moves to Canada in the movie. But they say at the end. In the postscript, they do say... That counts. Oh, okay. Plus, it's also true in reality. Much like Reuben Carter's eventual acquittal by the federal judge, I will give you that nutshell on a procedural technicality. I had a actually serious nutshell. I didn't want to go for comedy on this one. And it's one of the best lines in this whole movie. I have to set it up, though. Because when the cop pulls him over and says, we're looking for two black men in a white car, and he says, and you two will do... That nutshells this whole story, because they are so railroaded and framed. Big Pussy, who becomes a big fat liar, Vincent Pastor is the one who says, and it's Alfred Bellows, this real person. Apparently these two guys, Reuben and John Artis, yeah, I saw them there. And that's enough to convict Reuben, at least, for three consecutive life sentences. The cops didn't even suspect these two guys until this guy said, I saw them, two black guys. The issue I have with this movie is the same issue I think I've had with a lot of the movies we've covered that are in any way based on reality. The director, the writer, the producing team somehow have taken a series of real-life events and have dumbed them down so that you have caricatures of themselves. And many of the actual facts of the case, as presented in this, are just wholly inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And many other facts of the case are just omitted entirely. Which isn't to say that I think that Hurricane Carter was guilty or not guilty. I have no freaking clue. But I think what this movie does is a grave injustice to the story and... To him, frankly, as a man, because the way he's portrayed in this movie is as like a paragon of virtue that is done wrong by both society in general, and when you see his upbringing, and then later by authorities, as you said, he's railroaded into a conviction that he didn't deserve. De La Pesca was all out to get him. That is a perfect example of because that guy didn't exist. That's an entirely fictionalized character that had no bearing in reality. The guy that arrested... Reuben Carter for this crime originally had died four or five years before his eventual acquittal, right down to the final scene when you see the Della Pesca or whatever the character's name Dan is. Dan Hedea is the real, is the actor, yeah. wearing really bad old age makeup. You see him exchanging meaningful looks with Reuben Carter in the federal courtroom near the How dare he get out of prison? And threatening the Canadians that mm-hmm. are working to help acquit. There's a lot of issues I have with the way this movie is presented, and we can work through some of them as we talk about the movie itself. I wish movie makers would give people a bit more credit that you don't need to present two-dimensional caricatures of people. Like, you can have layered and complex characters, and Reuben Carter would have been a perfect example of that. Because he was no angel. No, he was a dick. Whether or not he was framed before this big one for other things, he was in jail before this. Yes, he was. Four years prior, he was in jail. Three muggings. Maybe all of that was framed. It's possible, but it's not like he was just some guy walking around doing nothing wrong. In the military, he was court-martialed four times. Yeah, and he was dishonorably discharged. Right. He found boxing in the military and became a champion there, and then became a champion in reality. You know, reality, but in the real world. Well, he lied about that, too. He was never the boxing champion of whatever he claimed to be. Oh, I didn't read that. Oh, really? Okay. One of the more interesting facts about him that I read was in his biography that was released in the 70s, Wrote his own book in prison. There's a picture of him in his military uniform. And in that picture, he's covered in medals and honors and stuff. And those were hand-drawn on. They were penciled (laughs) on. He had the time to draw in prison. In the 1970s, you didn't have the resources you have now. And of course, in 2019, somebody looks online, finds the original picture where he's just wearing an army uniform. And it's just like a shirt, essentially. No medals, nothing at all. And then the exact same picture from the book that was released 40 years ago. And of course, he's covered in these hand-drawn medals. 
it's a perfect encapsulation of whether it was Carter himself, or in this case the filmmakers, of trying to turn this character into something he wasn't. And you see it early in this movie when you see his background. They're building a little bit of complexity to this character early on because they talk about his upbringing and how difficult it was and mm -hmm. how he had to learn to survive. And the first shots of him and his friends, my first thought was, wow, this kid's a dick. Because you see him knocking people's hats off. They're stealing clothes from a shopkeeper that don't even fit them. They have no yeah. use for them except they just want to steal something. And they run away. And I thought they were leading up to a demonstration of this is a man that experienced difficulty and he is not your everyday angel. But then it, it takes a hard left. And instead of building on that truth, they turn him into some kind of defender of justice against a pedophile that confronts them at like mm -hmm. a Sherlock Holmesian waterfall. And that stabbing scene where he's defending a friend, the near, I'm going to throw you off a waterfall for throwing a bottle at my head when I was trying to molest your 10-year-old friend. Ruben turns around and stabs the guy. And then that turns into this vendetta against the kid mm -hmm. that lasts decades by this fictionalized New Jersey detective. It rang so false as to kind of ruin a lot of the aspects of the movie to me. As far as him not being a good military guy, because all that stuff, just forget his upbringing for a second. Yeah, yeah. But not being a good guy in the military, not being a good guy in reality, if he wasn't. I don't even know if he was or was not. But was not in any way a murderer and was framed for that. Let's just say that was what really happened. The movie presents that at least, although it also makes him out to be a hero from youth, as you said. Yeah. But that would make him more interesting. Maybe he's not the greatest guy in the world, yes. but he obviously shouldn't be in jail for doing something he didn't do, especially something as serious as killing somebody and putting in jail for life sentences. And if you think about it, we'll skip ahead to the end for a second. The Rod Steiger character, the judge, yeah. that is such a dice roll. And they know it. They make it very clear, as lawyers are even saying, if we don't get this new evidence that the Canadians have found, that's also fictionalized. The Canadians apparently didn't really do this. Guy. I remember reading about that yeah. 20 years ago when this movie came out. The Canadians did exist. Like, but they, yes, they existed. And he actually, I think, married Lisa. And they did do a substantial amount of work to help his lawyers But prepare. they weren't the reason that he got out of jail. And right down to this forged evidence that they present to the judge that mm -hmm. leads to the acquittal, that is also fake. That forged evidence doesn't exist. Mm. The acquittal that occurred by the federal judge was on the basis of procedural issues, that the proceedings of the previous two trials were tainted by, he doesn't use the words racial prejudice, but implies that the belief and the case that was presented that the shootings were racially motivated were unfounded. It was a much more nuanced decision, I think, mm. on the part of the judge than is presented in this movie. And of all the things this movie makes up, I can kind of understand that fictionalized piece of evidence that the Canadians quote-unquote find. I think it would be very hard to explain to an audience within the last 30 or 40 minutes of a movie what this procedural finding was by the federal judge yeah, that okay. led to the acquittal mm -hmm. if there wasn't the kind of smoking gun of evidence that led to the acquittals. From that perspective, I get it. But I agree with you entirely that I think it makes for a much more interesting movie if your lead character has a little bit of a darker history whether or not he actually mugged somebody or whether or not he was court-martialed out of the military, that doesn't make you a murderer. And maybe he was violent, maybe he stole stuff. That right. could all have been true. And he says... But he's, he's not a killer. It's one of the lines of the movie, too, is that as a fighter, and this I'm pretty sure was also fictionalized, but it, it fits your point, that as a fighter he had to figure out a way to destroy his opponents and maim these other men he's in the mm -hmm. ring with. But that does not make him a murderer. The two things are not inextricably linked. It is a funny thing, though. Boxing, I guess MMA, football as well, but especially boxing, maybe more than the rest of them, they want you to be that Mike Tyson in the ring. Savage killer. Get him, kill him, kill him, kill him. And then as soon as it's over, okay, turn that off. None of that. Go out in society and be normal. doesn't excuse what Mike Tyson did with that rape. It doesn't excuse what a lot of other boxers and football players and MMA players, or anyone has done. But if their job tells them to be aggressive, be violent, and be an animal, but then don't be that, as soon as we tell you to stop, and you better turn it off, that's asking a lot. But the point I want to finish making yes. about the judge, though, is that the movie portrays that Rod Steiger just, okay, there's no real reason why he says, I will hear that evidence. Because oh, if yeah. he doesn't, then Ruben's probably never getting out of jail. And certainly not in that trial. Right. The new trial. It was fun that the way that they portrayed the New Jersey state attorneys. Your Honor, this is, just strictly speaking, against the law. They've yeah. skipped over a level of court. That They're they right. Yeah. I'll allow it. Mm -hmm. And then when they say, okay, well, can we get an adjournment because we aren't ready to argue this case? Why, Why not? not? Yeah. Well, because what they're asking was against the law, so we didn't think it would go ahead. And then Rod Steiger's response was, eh, too bad. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting way to portray it. Such that. a movie that's... moment. I guess that must have happened in some way in reality, though, too, but it is a little bit hard to believe. Rod Steiger, by the way, was in a Jewison movie a long time ago. Bev and I covered it in the heat of the night. 
He was, was on the AFI right. Top 100 list. He won the Oscar for that movie. And Norman Jewison, legendary Canadian director, one of the great Canadian directors. Now, the guy said when Bev and I covered that movie all those years ago that he is the only Canadian director nominated for an Oscar, or one of the few, and then I forgot, oh, James Cameron is Canadian. Also, Adam McGoyan was nominated for The Sweet Hereafter. Anyway, Jewison, if you think about as a Canadian director, yes, Cameron is. He's certainly more famous, more successful. But Jewison, also David Cronenberg, has often shot and set movies in Canada in this case, we see the CN Tower when we establish the Canadians and Lesra being with them. We see the TTC here, our streetcar going by, which we still have now. It looks very similar. Of course, yeah. that movie probably didn't worry too much about the fact it should have looked like it was a decade or two earlier. But anyway, we know we're in Canada. They make it very clear. They're not shooting in Canada and pretending they're in New Jersey. They're actually supposed to be in Toronto, and Jewison has done that with other films. He's also a big racial justice guy because he made A Soldier Story, which is a movie about black characters. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. I forget the plot line, but Denzel Washington was in that. So they'd worked oh. together before. And In the Heat of the Night was about race. And yes, there's other movies too. And one movie, by the way, a bit of a sidebar we should cover. I never even thought of this until I was doing the research on the hurricane that Jewison directed in the mid-70s. It is a sports movie, although it's a fantasy sport in a way, especially the way it's portrayed in that film. But Rollerball, the original Rollerball. Yeah. James Conn's in that. Yeah, that would be a good one. Who'd have thought we'd do two Normus and Jewison sports movies? <laughs> <laughs> and eventually we probably will. This is, as I said before, barely a sports movie. The critics like this movie. 83% of them were on its side. And really? 87% of audiences, yeah. Mid-80s for both. 83 and 87. Oh, wow. The average for the critics was 6.98. Almost a 7 out of 10. Denzel was nominated for Best Actor. A really good group this year, as it was for Best Supporting Actor. Bev and I talked about that when we did Being John Malkovich, that the Supporting Actor group was great. Well, so were these five actors. And this didn't even include people like Hanks and The Green Mile. Could have been nominated. But Kevin Spacey won for American Beauty. Richard Farnsworth, excellent in The Straight Story. Russell Crowe in The Insider. I thought he was the best of these five, but all of them are really good. And then Sean Penn in Sweet and Low Down. And Denzel had never won Best Actor before. Should have. He won two years later for Training Day, which was yeah. a fine performance, but I don't think I would have given the Oscar for that. But he was overdue. I he could have won for this. It was a very strong performance. That was going to be my question to you is... What did you think of Denzel's performance in this and whether or not he would win? I mean, you answered whether or not you thought he should win the Oscar. Obviously not. I wouldn't have been against it, but I don't think he should have. He should have been winning for a very similar character, but with more depth and certainly more overall scope in Malcolm X seven years before. That should have won that year easily, although Pacino won for Scent of a Woman because he hadn't won for the Godfather movies or something else or Serpico long before. And that's the thing. Bev and I have talked about that in our podcast for years too, is that when somebody doesn't win one year, no one knows this is going to happen, but if they don't win for a movie that they should have and then they eventually get one of those make good Oscars 10, 15, 20 years later, then that maybe bumps to somebody else and then they win a make good later on. Denzel's two Oscars, Glory, that was worthy, supporting actor, but leading actor for Training Day? I don't know. Malcolm X absolutely should have been a win for him, or maybe this. But again, I don't think he was necessarily the best choice. A good choice. Denzel's been nominated a lot of times, though, especially in the yeah. last few years again. Fences got him some nominations and that really crappy Roman J. Israel Esquire movie got him <laughs> nominations. I do think that he is far and away the best thing about this movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean relative to the other actors in it, because there's a lot of fairly solid actors and performances in this movie, generally speaking. No one's bad, I wouldn't say. No, nobody's bad. But he is the best, and the best things in the movie are the scenes with him in jail. Often when he's by himself, too. Often when he's by himself. I don't know how you felt about this movie. I mean, it's long. It's two hours and 20 minutes or so. Two and a half hours, basically, yeah. To me, it felt every minute of that two and a half hours. There was a lot to this movie that probably didn't have to be there and didn't really serve a noticeable purpose in my eyes. We needed the Canadian scenes to establish who they are, but there's maybe a little bit too much of them. At the same point, though... Maybe don't need as many scenes in jail as you could have Ruben. We get the point of what he's going through. I do love the relationship with him and Jimmy, Clancy Brown's character, the prison guard. That's cute. Because he's playing completely off, Clancy Brown is, what he did in Shawshank, where he's this brutal prison guard. And now he's this nice guy who actually shows up at the trial. Well, he's there to escort Ruben. That's why he's got to be there. But he's actually in the courtroom, and he has this nice little smile on his face when Ruben is acquitted. Not acquitted, but released from jail. It made me wonder when he was playing that character whether or not the guard that he plays is being as nice as he is because he's actually a nice guy. He behaves this way right from the Mm get-go. The second he meets Carter, it's not like they build a relationship and that's why he's nice. He's just always nice. Carter gets thrown into solitary confinement. It's one of those lengthy scenes of him arguing with his inner demons, effectively, and then he comes out filthy and stinking. And the only way that the guard can get him to shower and change is through this negotiation because Carter and this I do think is accurate, developed a very firm set of mental rules to live by in order to survive jail. And some of those were he would not bend to these demands or he would purge himself of any worldly desires. Stayed in a cell all the time. Exactly. So 
maybe it is partly kindness, maybe I'm just overthinking it, but it seemed like it was this prison guard's way of getting a difficult prisoner to just play ball and not cause trouble and just get through the time. You gotta be nice, you gotta negotiate, you gotta get him to agree to what you want in a way that he's gonna actually do it. There's a nice prison guard in When They See Us, the TV miniseries that came out last year, I believe it was, I think it won some Emmys. But that's about the Central Park Five. And when we see the main character, the one they make the main character in that series, he's got a really nice guy who helps him out too. And then when that guy's out of the show, he's just out of the show, which is what would happen because the guy gets transferred to a different prison and we never, I don't think we ever see that guy again. But it reminded me a lot of the Clancy Brown portrayal in this movie. And I guess in both cases, it's just a nice person showing respect to somebody, maybe because they're black. Maybe the idea is that I'm going to go above and beyond because I don't want to be a racist. It could be. Who just treats you like garbage. But the thing I will say that I don't really find entirely authentic, even though I like the scenes with Jimmy and Ruben, is that I don't know if it makes a lot of sense in prison. Maybe movies have made this way more dramatic than it actually is in reality. But it feels like when you're in prison, whatever the warden and the guards want to do to you, they're going to do to you. And if you don't want to cooperate, here comes the nightstick. Here come the fists. Here come the rubber bullets. Like a Bronson scenario with the the Tom Hardy movie. I don't love the idea, but if you're not going to cooperate with their rules and there's really no one to watch and stop them from doing it, especially movies maybe have that right. I feel like they maybe have that right, that that's probably what prison guards would do, especially if somebody's being this obstinate, as justifiable as it is to be obstinate, the way Ruben is. I don't know if I fully buy it, even though I like the way it's played, if that makes sense. Especially at this point in time, late 60s to early 80s, right? So we're not talking 2019, where there's a little bit more of a magnifying glass, because we hear about it now. You periodically hear about prisoners being abused by the guards, and there's the entirely justifiable outrage at that. Oh, and I agree, by the way. That should not be happening. When I said a minute ago, I didn't want to say, oh, they should be. It's just, that's the way it is, though, I think. In terms of portrayal, you were saying it would be a little bit, at least authentic, to portray that happening especially 40 to 50 years ago, when I'm sure it happened with a lot more regularity. Civil rights got people really riled up. A lot of white people were even madder than ever at black people for daring to try to fight for their basic rights as human beings. This is part of the difficulty with, I think, the police force in a historic context anyway. Probably the same thing is true of prison guards. Part of what will attract at least a segment of people to those positions is the potential to have power and authority over others where they otherwise might not have that opportunity in life. That's not to cast a blanket over everybody that does those jobs, but in any large group, there's going to be a certain number of people that will abuse that small authority that they're given. And when nobody's looking and you have that power and maybe you're a small-minded person, yeah, you're going to do something horrible, I'm sure, because you can sometimes. Look what happens in the military. Yes. We're just coming off Remembrance Day. It's only a few days ago as we record this. I've always got complicated feelings. I want to honor people that have fought for freedom way more than I've ever done. But when I saw that documentary, The Invisible War, all those years ago with Bev, about rape in the military and how pervasive it is, it isn't that everyone's doing it, but enough people are, and then other people are keeping their mouth shut. Yeah. makes me think that happens in a lot more places. So like when athletes, locker room talk with Donald Trump, we don't do that. <laughs> we would never do that. I just don't believe it. I know I've said this before in other episodes, but homophobia, sexism, all that stuff that they would say they're mm-hmm. not guilty of, maybe they stop doing it now, but I think they've been doing it all along. So when you see movies portray athletes or prison guards or whatever is being this way they know better than i do but i just don't really believe that it's a nice place it's as he oh, said no, of course not like the shawshank prison isn't all what is it sunshine and rainbows Sunshine's or rainbows yeah fairytale world that's what he says it's not a fairytale world well, by the way this movie also is nominated for two afi lists could have been a third could have been nominated for the courtroom genres list i would think because <laughs> there's actually more courtroom scenes probably than there are sports scenes or maybe even but it was nominated for the top 100 genres in the sports category i don't get it <laughs> i know it's yeah. not a sports movie it's true but then also the top 100 cheers and this movie is not very inspiring until maybe towards the last 20 or 30 minutes because Lesra, we haven't really talked about him yet, Vesselis Shannon, and that time it was Vesselis Rian, Rian, whatever, Shannon, he reads the book, gets inspired, and the movie portrays it that if he didn't go to New Jersey a few times to Rahway, the infamous prison there, and see Reuben, and the Canadians come down, and by then, after 16 years in prison, Reuben is pretty obstinate. Don't blame him, but he's not very nice to them. No. And like, then they eventually moved to New Jersey, and again, maybe that was real, but they're the ones that actually solved this case, effectively, because lawyers are trying. They're good people. David Pamer and Harris Eulen are good lawyers, but they're the ones that make all the difference. But the inspiring part, I guess, would be Lesra helps out this guy he never met before, and then that line that was in the trailer, and I quoted it earlier, hey, put me in here, love's going to bust me out, which is both corny and kind of nice. But that's what this movie's all about, in the end, with the inspiring stuff, is simply the lesra Rubin relationship, and that a guy who was railroaded can be released from prison. One of the things that I think I had the most difficulty with as a movie 
again, this kind of plays into what I was talking about with movies simplifying and fudging reality to try to make a story that I guess people can more easily get behind and have that cheer moment at the end, I suppose. But they both make Reuben Carter a shadow of what he actually was in reality as a man, right? In terms of turning him into a, a paragon of virtue as railroaded. But they also make him a bit of a dick. He's just an ass to everybody around him, always. That goes back to before he was even arrested. And I would understand that in reality because of his history, and you touched on that with his arrest for mugging and his history in the military. But as far as this movie is concerned, that doesn't exist. They don't touch on that at all, right? They don't talk about his previous arrests, aside from that thing as a kid, which was fictionalized anyway. Mm -hmm. Nor do they touch on his military history. A little bit. They do touch on it, but gloss it over. In terms of his military history, it's I joined the military, I became a stand-up citizen, I became a boxing champ, and then here I am back home again. They vowed to never return to jail, even though he goes back to jail not long yeah, after. Yeah, they don't touch on his court-martials is what I'm speaking about. Okay. But he meets his agent or friend, white agent or friend, in a bar, and they're just talking about some of the civil rights riots on television, and I think the guy... Now, granted, this is always difficult to talk about when you're not a visible minority and you're talking about the issues that they've gone through historically, so this is uncomfortable, I suppose. But if I were in that guy's shoes and I sat down with somebody and said, hey, that guy points to the television and says, oh, look at all those riots and starts espousing about them. And I said, well, you care so much about them. Why aren't you out there with them? And then the response to that is, well, you want me to go out there and shoot five cops? Is that what you want? I'm like, that escalated quickly. I, don't <laughs> know. I thought it was a fairly innocuous is the wrong word, but I thought it was intended in a congenial discussion kind of way. Much like you said, the Canadians who are three white folks that visit him in jail and Deborah Unger at one point says, you know, we're not trying to judge anything you've done in reference to the way he's conducted himself in jail. That self-denial, I'm not leaving my cell, I'm not interacting with anybody, I'm not doing any of that stuff that they want us to do in jail. And I think that's a fair comment to make. She's trying to get to know the man. She's trying to introduce herself. She's also into him. Also into him. That's as, very subtle. And I think, yeah. again, the two people in reality got together. So that's probably yeah. why it's in there at all. And his response to that is to say, you're damn right. You can't judge me. You ain't been through what I've been through. I'm like, well, we get that. We're not. And then he storms out. They came all that way for nothing. Mm -hmm. They came from Toronto to visit you. And you just left because she made a statement to say that they're not judging anything you've done. So he's a very prickly character on the one hand, but then on the other hand, you're meant to believe that he's never done a thing wrong in his adult life. The depiction of him as a man, as I've said now, I think four times, is problematic, and that took me out of this So inconsistent, movie. then? It's both inconsistent and disingenuous, I think, to believe that a guy could have that type of personality, that much anger. The anger comes out. And by mm. all accounts, Reuben Carter... And he should be angry. He should be. And I'm not saying it's unjustified. He should be angry even beyond what Della Pasca ever tried to do to him. Because he lives in a society that hates him because he has the wrong color skin. You said that perfectly. Because that's the other issue I had in this movie is by boiling down Reuben Carter's difficulty to one racist detective, as this movie does, it frames the story as essentially being this Della Pesca detective... If that, we're not for him! Yeah, that has a vendetta against mm. Reuben Carter for racist reasons. But that the system are, has a vendetta against people like Reuben Carter. Exactly. People like him, I don't mean to sound like Don Cherry, who aren't like you and me, who aren't white. Yeah, and I think that makes for a much more effective story if instead of inventing this detective character that's out to get Reuben, you portray it in the more factually accurate way in that this is a man that encounters circumstances within a society that is clearly out to get anyone that looks like him. At this point in time, New Jersey is rife with racism. Oh, and the key thing here, too, is that he dares to be an uppity N-word. Because he is vocal, he's not the nicest guy in the world, but he's also succeeding. Yes. So when you get to be that level, it's almost more a matter of, oh, we got to bring him down. Yeah, and I think if you portray it that way, if you portray it as a successful African-American athlete in the mid-60s in a part of the country, in a time and a place that is just embedded with racism, and he is fighting against that system and gets caught up in it, I think that's a much more effective tale to tell because you're fighting against an enemy that is much more pervasive, that is much more difficult to take down and break. And at various points, he makes the comment in this movie, he would have to take down people in order to be free because it would make them look bad. And I didn't understand that at all because as the movie portrays it, it was effectively this one detective, this one local guy in New Jersey that was responsible for his conviction. None of the systemic stuff is really talked about. The cop that pulls them over... Ruben knew him. He knows his name. And he doesn't seem like he even wants to be bothering them at all. 
It's not like he's saying, oh, we got him, that whole any two will do thing. Yeah. I don't remember the exact reaction of that cop, but I feel like it was a little bit of embarrassment, which is, oh, yeah, you're right. That's kind of what we're doing, isn't it? Yeah. It's not a matter of, yeah, we did get you. You dare to be uppity, you know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in that scene, when they pull him over, it's not like a license and registration moment. It's kind of like a, hey, Ruben, hey, you know, mm-hmm. whatever officer your name is, what's going on? What can I do for you? Well, we're looking for these two guys. And then he makes the any two would do comment. Delapesca is the key, which is a little bit silly. Yeah, a little bit. Well, you know what, though? This movie is based on two books. It's based on Ruben's book they wrote in jail, the autobiography. Yes. And it's from the book that Terry and Sam, the John Hanna and Liev Schreiber characters wrote. So it would be slanted. I'm not saying it's untrue. But it's their point of view. It isn't some ghostwriter. It isn't somebody who wrote the thing later on or some more objective source. Yeah. And also, I'm sure that Norman Jewison, who was a social justice kind of guy in his movies, often, he dealt with race quite a bit in his movies. He really seemed to care about people. I say in the past tense because he hasn't made a movie since, I think, 2003. But he's still alive. He's 93, 93 Norman Jewison yeah. is. And I think that Toronto Film Festival every year, he's still an ambassador for it kind of thing. People go to his farm and he just really? is almost like an unofficial host of the whole thing. I think he has been for a long time. So I think he's trying to do the right thing by a black lead character who he felt was railroaded, but maybe he's got blinders on to all that. So let's crystallize it with this one guy. And by the way, Carter died in 2014, but was released in 1985. So he had about 30 years out of jail. Can't get those years back. That's awful. I watched that movie Life just last night, coincidentally. Eddie Murphy, Eddie, Murphy and Murphy. Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence, <laughs> which I didn't laugh at that much, but it's actually a pretty good story. I like the way they do a lot of things in that movie. I wouldn't say I quite would give it a thumbs up because I didn't really laugh that much. But the way that some of the characters that they get to know in the prison, they just show them on a bunk or they show them in the prison yard or whatever, just disappears. If, okay, well, they either died or they got out of jail, but our two main characters are in jail for most of their lives. And there's yeah. a line that Ned Beatty's character has, who's a sympathetic warden towards the end of that, something like, I can't give you those 40 years back. Same thing with Ruben. He's not going to get those years back. And that's a shame that he ever had to, well, I'm not putting it lightly, a shame. But at least he did get almost 30 years out of jail. And he yeah. did marry, I think it was supposed to be Lisa. I don't know what her real name was, but they didn't last long term. There's an interesting scene in this movie, and it's one of the more emotionally affecting scenes, actually, on Denzel's part, where his wife comes to visit him. Mm -hmm. And this was an interesting little turnabout, too, because I think the last scene you see of Ruben and Thelma May, his wife's name, I think? May Thelma. The last time you see them together out of prison is when they're arguing. They're having a fight because of what he had done in the bar when he'd reacted to the comment that his friend had made about the race riots going on. So they had clearly a little bit of a rocky relationship. In fact, they met because he threatened to beat the shit out of another army private in the first bar that he pops into, right? It's like, you're in my seat. Well, I don't see your name because you're blinded by the ass whooping I'm about to give you, (laughs) which I thought was a good line, but kind of like a violent tone to set in your relationship. But then later in the movie, once he's been in prison for 16 years at that point or so, she comes to visit him and he gives that heartfelt speech and then, I need you to divorce me because I'm already dead. I will die in here. I'm dead. I'm not a person anymore. Let me go. Loving you is going to hurt me. Yeah. Apparently the reality was he had multiple affairs with his supporters that I guess would visit him conjugally in prison. And so his wife divorced him on those grounds. Okay. In fact, the reason that he was out on the town on the night of the murder to begin with was because he was meeting a mistress. He was with Maythelma by that point, wasn't he? Yeah, he was married. And that yeah, that's right, they were married. They course, had a kid, yeah. in yeah. fact. I think the Deborah Unger character asks him about the bar that he was at and how it was a ladies' night on a Thursday and all that, and he made a comment about, am I in jail for murder or for attempted adultery or something like that? So it's just another instance of him not being a perfect man, and it would have been more interesting to see more of that. The Hollywood movies... And this is not really truly Hollywood, I guess, because it was made by a Canadian and shot off in Canada. But it's still a Hollywood movie with big stars like Denzel. They don't want it to be too complicated, even though I think that generally audiences would appreciate that even more. I don't want to get too much into the details of the case, but a few things that I thought were interesting and I wish had been included in this movie. When Reuben Carter was pulled over, there was three men in the car, not okay. two. Artis or Arliss, what was his name? David John Artis? Artis. He was... By the way, any three will do. Any three will do. <laughs> Artis was driving. There was another man in the car whose name I can't remember. The real killer. In in the passenger seat. And Reuben Carter was apparently lying down in the back seat, which is a little bit, why are you hiding kind of thing. I think that was part of the perception of guilt that was laid on him. There were two guns found in the car when they were pulled over, a shotgun and a thirty-eight or something that apparently matched the description of the weapons used in the shooting. Uh Artists, who the movie portrays as being with Reuben Carter throughout the evening, said in testimony that he only saw Carter at the end of the night when the bars were closing. They met up and he offered to give Carter a ride home and hadn't been with him the rest of the evening. 
the guy that was actually with Carter for most of the night was somebody that disappeared and they couldn't find. And there's some really interesting stories later about how one of his supporters in the 70s found the guy while Reuben Carter was actually out on bail in between his first and second trial. Did you read if anyone actually, whether it be Alfred Bellow, Vincent Pastor, or anyone else, saw anyone do this? Because running away from a bar, even after there have been gunshots, is not proof of murder, just like there's no, if there weren't, yeah. fingerprints on guns, gun residue on your hands. I mentioned Shawshank earlier. These movies are tied in a lot of ways. One of the things about Shawshank, and I just watched that again a week or so ago. Love that movie. I've seen it many times, like most people. But the opening premise is not believable. Andy Dufresne wouldn't go to jail when they don't find the weapon and they can't prove he was there. Okay, they found bullets and a bourbon bottle that has fingerprints on it. That doesn't mean he was ever there necessarily that night or that he did anything. He could have gone in the room as he said. I just wanted to scare them, I think. All of that could have happened doesn't make him a killer. So anyway, did you read about this real case? If anyone witnessed anything, if anyone found any actual proof on them, yeah, they had guns, not cool. Yes, he was obstinate. But did you read about any kind of real evidence? There were two eyewitnesses that saw two guys come out of the bar holding the guns, apparently. Bella was one. I can't remember who the other guy's name was. They mentioned the woman that was across the street that saw the car pull away. And evidently, the depiction of how they left was fictionalized as well. In reality, they came out of the bar and they walked some distance around the block, so it wasn't just like a quick view of the guys they got a good look at them two of the witnesses bellow and the other woman i believe later recanted their initial testimony that led to the initial conviction and then bellow recanted his recantation later on oh yeah makes him an unreliable witness then doesn't it he later said i recanted the first time because supporters of reuben carter gave me twenty seven thousand dollars to recant my (laughs) statement there's so much uncertainty to this whole thing you know one of the subtle touches i would say with the Alphabello thing especially, yeah. any white witness, and maybe the movie is going for this on purpose and the authors as well, is the idea that you saw two guys, and I can identify them, but it's that whole thing about all black people look the same. People have said that for a long time. You know a lot of people that don't say it think it. And yeah. then apparently black people think that all white people look the same, and I'm sure all whoever think all Indian people look the same and all Chinese people look the same. It's an ongoing way that people look at it if they're not that race. So maybe Alfred Bello honestly thought it was Reuben Carter because, well, of course it was. Black guy looks like a black guy. That's possibly very true. That's the difficulty with something like this, is when any piece of evidence that isn't just video, and then like in 1966, was that when the shooting took place? 64, 65, 66? Sounds like that, okay. You're not going to have access to that. So any evidence you have is potentially at least tainted by racial prejudice. And that's part of the complexity and difficulty of this case. And it's one of the things that is dumbed down significantly for the movie mm. that's a little upsetting. It might be a three-hour movie, though, if you went really deep into that. I know. Listen, I'm not saying it's easy. Maybe it's just a 2019 thing. In 2019, you see more movies, particularly that are released through streaming platforms rather than theatrically, that are willing to delve into some of the deeper complexities of social issues that we're experiencing now, and maybe audiences are more willing to accept it in 2019 than they were in 1999. Well, that When They See Us was pretty popular on Netflix. Yeah. so take a look at it. I'm going to check that out as well. Maybe it's just me looking back 20 years ago and wishing that somebody had done something a little bit differently and more in-depth then, and it wouldn't have been acceptable, and it is now. And maybe they'll remake something like that. Apparently there's, and this is something I really want to listen to, and I will after we record this, there's a podcast that was done by two British sports reporters, and they wanted to get to the bottom of this themselves, so they did some in-depth. Now, they're not crime journalists, they're not criminal investigators, they're just sports journalists, but apparently they did quite an in-depth review of all the evidence of the case, and I think their conclusion, though I haven't listened to the entirety of the podcast, was effectively that it's inconclusive. That there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that points toward Reuben Carter being the kind of man that was potentially capable of violence like this. He was in the place at the time. And there was other evidence that I didn't speak to. I think, by the way, we're all capable of violence like that at any moment. Everyone, again, Shawshank Redemption. Every man's guy's breaking point. Oh, of course. And this whole notion, I'll mention this guy again, I'm the least racist person. We're all racist in some way or another. It's all about not acting on it. It's all about not feeding into it. It's all about trying to treat people properly. When that instant reaction to, oh, black guy did it, you can have that, but don't feed into it, don't buy into it, and don't put somebody in jail for not doing anything wrong. And part of the racial prejudice that just pervaded this case was a couple blocks away from where the shootings took place that Reuben Carter was convicted of, there was another bar. 
and there was a black bartender that worked at that bar who was shot and killed by a white man. Reuben Carter's drinking buddy the evening of his accused shooting, it happened the same night, a couple blocks away, was the stepson of the black man that was murdered. Oh. So the thought is, okay, they found out this guy's stepfather was killed by a white man. They got angry. They went two blocks around the corner to this bar that was known to be a whites-only bar. So any three will do, because three people got killed. The accusation is it was racially motivated, because they went to a bar that was known to treat black patrons in a racist way Mm. to exact revenge on basically any white person that was there because of another racially motivated killing. So that was the overarching racial violence theory that pervaded this case that I think ultimately led to the federal disposition. I don't know, man. It's so freaking complex when you yeah, when you actually yeah. dig into the details of the story. To me, it's so much more interesting than the way this is put on screen. Well, this is supposed to be a sports movie, and we're, of course, a sports movie podcast. What did you think of, I guess you already said this, but the sports, <laughs> what little is in it, okay at best. Denzel yeah. got in incredible shape. He did. And he trained he was for a year. For probably less boxing time than Raging Bull has. And you're not a Raging Bull fan. Also, no, a classic boxing movie. A lot of people love it. But there's very little boxing in that, despite yeah. the fact it's the number one sports movie on the AFI's sports list, the top ten. Rocky's number two. There's a lot of boxing in Rocky, although even that doesn't have that much boxing. It's more about training and preparing than actually boxing. But Raging Bull is very little. <laughs> All about and, the montages, right? Yep, and the hurricane, right. And the hurricane probably has even less than Raging Bull does. The boxing itself was fine. It seemed like they slowed it down intentionally, I guess because it makes the choreography a little bit easier if you can sort of do the steps and the pacing in slow motion, maybe speed it up a little bit for the film. Denzel was early 40s when he made this movie. He was born in 1954 and it came out in 1999, so he's probably 43, 44 when they shot it. If you ever see pictures of Reuben Carter from this era... The man was a beast. He was a mountain of a man. He was only five foot seven, so he wasn't tall. Yeah, Denzel's a lot bigger than him with weight and with height. Yeah. But if you ever look at Mike Tyson in his prime, Mike Tyson is all of what about five six, five seven himself. No, I think he's taller than that, but he's not tall. He's, Maybe five nine, five ten tops. Yeah, but he's massive. And Reuben Carter looked the same way for a guy that's only five seven. He was built. He would be intimidating to go up against in the ring. I don't care if you're my height, six much, four, much like me. Yeah, well, every Same time height. I sit down to record, I have to drink just to swallow my anxiety, Ryan. I don't drink this beer for fun. You I know? might I cold d- cock you at any time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm constantly on the edge of my seat. <laughs> Fast right. So two more things I want to bring up, and then we'll wrap up here. What did you think of the Canadians? Because Vasella Shannon and Denzel Washington are the two main black characters. And they're the two main characters, so that means this is a black movie, and that's great. We haven't had a ton of black people in our movies. I guess Cool Runnings was primarily black characters in their mm-hmm. story. Deborah Kara Unger, who was getting kind of big at this point. She was in Payback the same year as this, The Game, a couple years before this. She still gets roles even now, but doesn't have a great career. I don't really know why. She's not the greatest actress I've ever seen, but she's pretty she's solid fine. in this. Liev Schreiber, of course, still works. People always want to call him Leave, but it's Liev. John Hanna was in the Mummy series and a lot of TV shows. So what do you think of the portrayal by the four, well, the three, I guess, Canadians, because Lesra is from Jersey or Brooklyn, Harlem? Yeah, he's from the New Jersey area, I took it. I don't think they're really very clear on that. I was mostly confused, especially early on. I mean, once you get to the latter stages of the movie and they're just focused on doing some legal digging. But early on, I couldn't wrap my head around who they were supposed to be, how they got involved with the Lesra character initially. Yeah, I didn't really grasp that either. At first, I thought they were college recruiters for something and that he was a potential football player or something. But then it was clear that, no, they're just going to effectively adopt him for two years. And there's no one else in that house that we ever see. It's just him. Yeah, it's not like they're running a group home for kids. And he's the one they like the most or something. No, it's not the X-Men mansion. It's just him. So it was a little bit weird and confusing as far as what their deal was. Are they in some sort of polyamorous relationship? Well, that's what I want to bring up as well, because we always talk about, can you score this movie? I think it's possible that Terry, Sam, and Lisa are having constant threesomes. I think so. This movie doesn't actually betray that, but... It's kind of implied, though. They live in the same house... It's, and they all move together. It's not like two of them moved or one of them moved. All three of them decide up on their lives and yeah. go to a different country for quite a long time. It would be one thing if they were portrayed as a professional unit, the three of them, but they clearly live and work together. I don't know. There's an implication there that this was, especially given that we first see them, I guess, late 70s, early 80s is when they come on the scene. But that's very much the post-hippie commune group existence kind of era. It's so, still the 60s, even though it's not the 60s. So it could be. They didn't really do much for me throughout the movie. And I'm a guy that loves Liev Schreiber, mm-hmm. especially in his latter, more menacing Ray Donovan. roles. Yeah, Ray Donovan in particular. 
The other two are fine. He doesn't have a lot to do. He just nods his head and then throws in the odd comment. Schreiber. Yeah, John Hannah really gets overlooked compared to the other two because Schreiber was already known. and He was in the yeah. Scream movies. He'd already been in a few of those. And he was in some more of them. Well, at least one more of them. Vassella Shannon's character was by far, if you're going to lump him in with the Canadians, he's the best. He's the most well-developed character. He was in D2, The Mighty Ducks. What? I don't know who he was, but he was in that movie in 1994. Okay, now the we're going sequel. to have to do The Mighty Ducks 2 now just to <laughs> talk about race issues as depicted in D2. <laughs> Great. Oh, also, the real Lesra is a lawyer now, so good for him that he actually saw what he could do with this. Is just a kid helping out and said, hey, I'm going to try to do the right thing here. And I guess yeah. that's also what Reuben Carter did, not being a lawyer, but he did social justice kind of things. And yeah. Some of the movie I saw recently was like that, where somebody was freed from prison and they said, I'm going to do the right thing by people who have been steamrolled. I can't remember what the movie was right now. I think that is a repetitive theme in reality. I don't just mean in movies. You're exactly right in saying that Reuben Carter post-prison was a champion for social justice and for people that had been wrongly accused of things based on racial discrimination and stuff like that. But wouldn't that have also been an interesting personal and character development point to include in a movie if you portray him as a flawed human being, as a man that has struggled with his own anger and had lashed out in various ways through his youth and early adulthood and through the horrific experience that he went through in his imprisonment, came out the other side and found a more constructive way to channel his justifiable anger through helping other people. And you don't have to comment on the case itself. Whatever you believe to be the case with the shooting that evening, I think as we've talked about in depth, I don't have the first clue as to whether or not Reuben Carter was actually innocent or guilty. I'm super confused by the details of it now. I think it's incredibly murky. So much of it is based on eyewitness testimony. And, and that, if you can't really prove something, then it doesn't matter what your instinct is. You can't put somebody in jail, especially for life. Yeah, it's presumptive innocence, it. right? Yeah. Innocent until proven guilty. It would have been a more interesting arc for his character if we thought him to be a little bit more flawed and came out the other side as this paragon of social justice, I think. That final little piece to the whole puzzle that I would have liked to have seen on the screen. So what's your score for this movie, then? Based almost entirely on the performance of Denzel himself, I'd give it maybe a 5 out of 10. Only 5? I'd go 7. I think the social justice stuff and a little bit of the courtroom stuff and Denzel, like you said, all the actors really put it up to that level. It's a little disappointing, but it's also a very solid movie, I would say. Norman Jewison, yeah. I guess I'm a little bit biased towards him. I do like the guy. Then again, I said this when Bev and I covered Moonstruck and probably when we covered In the Heat of the Night, that I've never loved anything he's ever made. He's the Spencer Tracy of directors. <laughs> you just kind of like it? As good as he's been, he's never actually made something I thought was great. And this is a great example of that. And I think Jewison said this was his best movie of his own. He feels like really? this is the best work I ever did, even though he did. The best picture winner in In the Heat of the Night. And a beloved film like Moonstruck. I didn't love the way the movie looked, visually speaking. In terms and Roger of... Deakin shot this, the living legend that he is now. Really? Yeah, the guy who finally won an Oscar for Blade Runner 2049 a few years ago, worked with the Coens all those years. He shot it. The palette of the movie, I think, is intentionally toned down. It's supposed yeah. to be a bleak and dreary... A prison in Canada, so yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> Cold, was... unforgiving places. Visually, it didn't do a lot for me. Musically, you've got the Bob Dylan song. Three times at least. It might be yeah, four, but well, I definitely heard it three times. It just constantly repeats. It's a good song, but other than that, you don't have a lot going on. But then as far as the story goes, we've beaten that to death as far as my thoughts about how they simplified and I think did a disservice both to Reuben Carter and, like you said, the social justice stuff. I think you can tell a much more effective and interesting and important story if you talk about the racial biases of the time in a more systemic way rather than narrow it on that one detective character. And then lastly, it just felt like it dragged. If I think, yes. about, if yeah. I think about all those things in total, I paused I the movie. Man, I struggled. About an hour, hour and 15 of the movie, I went to the washroom and got a drink. And when I paused, I saw where it was in the PVR because I saw this on demand. And I remember thinking, what in the world's going to happen to basically be double this running time? Yeah, my reaction is. But exactly. that's when the Canadians take over. And maybe that's part of the problem is that the Canadians in the last half of the movie are so much, not to say that Denzel's not in it, but there's so much in that second half of the movie. And they're fine. But I also felt like, even if this is real, I don't really care about them the same way. And they do the best they can. By the way, Liev Schreiber, a bit of a sidebar on this, we've already covered him. You remember what movie he was in? Goon! Yes. He oh, was in I, Goon! I, it. Oh, yep. I beat you to it. You beat me to it. Well, you know what? If there's any consolation, Ryan, it's if you asked the quote-unquote Canadians that are in this movie... Why'd you ruin the movie? You're in it too much. I can guarantee you they would apologize for being they in it too sorry. much. They would say sorry. Sorry. Really sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, eh? Yeah, okay. So the sports in this is <laughs> yeah, okay. not the greatest considering it is an AFI. No. They actually recognized it. One of their 50 nominees is one of the great sports movies. As sexy as Denzel in this movie, I gotta say, 
I don't think you're scoring. That's something that is this well, he's not, slow and depressing. I hope he's not scoring in prison. Did you pick up on the fact that his character, I think they're talking to the Canadians or to the Cell Shannon character, Lesra. At one point he says, all that happens to you in prison, what was it, something along the lines of you get gang raped in the shower or beaten up in the yard or something like that. But then at the end of the movie, when the announcement goes over the PA that he was set free, everybody in the prison erupts in cheering. Like a boxing match. Like a boxing match. These are all huge fans of Reuben Carter. Mm-hmm. but They given, barely knew him all those years. But given the opportunity, they would gang rape him in the shower? Oh, maybe so, yeah. <laughs> I guess you could argue that as the years I mean, went what? on, they got to know this guy who for a long time kept to himself. Because he does get to know that one guy. He hugs him as he leaves the prison to go we to do see a few the court that guy. before that's he right, actually yeah. gets freed. Yeah, so maybe that's what's supposed to be the case, is he got more of the prison culture as the years went on, a little bit at least. I suppose. And I guess through the 70s, he also became more of a celebrity cause as Bob Dylan, Muhammad Ali, those kinds of people started advocating on mm-hmm. his behalf. So I'm sure he became better known, even if he wasn't interacting with them in prison. I'm sure a lot of the people around yeah, him... Yeah, Bob Dylan, there's a picture of him, actually went to see him, I don't know how many times, so at least once. Yeah. And then went to the trouble to write a song about him, so he did something at least... He tried. A very long song, too. Mm-hmm. Have you ever listened to it? It's like eight and a half minutes long. Really? Okay. <laughs> Happened to see a Bob Dylan documentary recently on Netflix that Scorsese directed, and that picture is shown in the song, I think, is played. Interestingly enough, I just happened to watch it. I think it was mm. the day after I saw this movie. It's a pretty famous shot of him there with the harmonica playing the song, yeah. Not the most uplifting sport movie that we've talked about. Even though about it was nominated song. for the top 100 cheers, which means most inspiring. Didn't make it, but it was nominated. Looked at a certain way, it is inspiring. It's just not the kind of inspiration you expect out of Insp- a sport movie, right? Yes, like, a exactly. Yeah. Sport movie. He inspired a kid, though, and then the real person went on to do some good things Yeah, as yeah. a lawyer. So good for him. Okay, that's it for this one. In two weeks, we'll battle those dastardly commies on the Olympic ice as we take a look at Kurt Russell being an intense hockey coach in a really good hockey movie called Miracle. Are we going to get as in-depth into the political issues of communist Russia versus Western culture as as we got into the social justice Somewhat in-depth. It is a huge part of the film, I would say. We're going to have to do something just mindless and stupid pretty soon. We're really hammering these touchy subjects lately, eh? It's probably true, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. All right. D2. (laughs) Maybe next year, then. (laughs) I don't want to do hockey again when we just do hockey in two weeks. Okay, so we're on Twitter. He is at Movies. I'm at MovieFiend51. We're on Stitcher and Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And, of course, the website, Top100Project.com. Take her easy, dudes. I hope that you will in prison. I know that you will in prison. Is there a way to use the love set me free lingo within that? I know what I could do. How about the Bob Dylan version? Take her easy, dudes. I know that <laughs> you will. <laughs> That's a bad Bob Dylan. Oh, before we go, how was the beer? Quickly. Oh, refreshing and delicious. All right. That's it. Bye. Bye.